Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Rich Sheridan. He is the CEO and Chief Storyteller of Menlo Innovations, as well as the author of Joy Incorporated and the Joy Officer. Rich, or should I say Richard, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Uh, yeah, Thanks so for having me. No, also, awesome to have you. Uh, you've been a big inspiration. Um, you know, the, your, your software firm in Ann Arbor has kind of become famous for your culture and your work practices. Uh, I, um, I've been inspired by the stories about your organization. So, yes, it's a thrill to have you here to, to share in detail about how, how you work. And as you might imagine, things have changed considerably since, uh, since March. So we can talk about that too. Right. Yes. So building uh, a joyful workplace, uh, a workplace that people love. Uh, yeah. It's, I guess it's an, it's, it feels like a pipe dream for so many. You know, when you look at the stats, 60% of people not engaged with their workplace. Um, how, how did you come? to, I guess, even dare to imagine that you could create such a workplace. Yeah, I know my, uh, my daughters often ask me uh, when they see now what I have in my work life and my professional life, and they're like, how do we get there, Dad? We want this in our jobs too. And I have to remind them that there was a good 20 years of pain uh, in my professional career leading up to the kind of the revelations that I now uh, experience on a daily basis. And so pain is a good teacher. And I had just, I guess, uh, through some fairly uh, strong, what I call trough of disillusionment years, uh, not let go of the dream that things could be better, like a lot better. And I was just determined to find it. Uh, I knew there had to be a better way of doing what I thought should be a terrific um, career profession industry. Uh, I loved doing what I was doing in software development, whether I was a programmer at one end or leading teams of people doing that kind of work at the other end of my career. And yet I was just seeing trouble, trouble everywhere. And, you know, I probably you know toyed with the idea, maybe I'm just not good enough for this. Maybe it's, maybe it's just me. And, but as I surveyed the industry, I saw that there was trouble everywhere. And I guess in that, you know, my internal optimist kicked in. I said, well, if there's that much trouble, there's got to be opportunity. And that really fueled my my engine. That uh, gave me that hope for the future that maybe there is a better way of doing things than is customary. And, then, uh, and my journey led me to authors and books, and but not books on technology, books on, well, probably books that you read on, you know, being more human in the workplace, uh, books about leadership, uh, about influence, about systems thinking, uh, just about management. And all of those books were telling me there was a better way. And I was just excited to learn that, hey, there are others at least thinking about the same problems I'm having. Uh, and perhaps there's a way out. Right. And, and when you were experiencing the, those that pain as you describe it were there were there some seminal moments you know was there one you know a couple an event that stands out that really tipped you over and, and had you decide you wanted to do something differently yeah you know there i i think there were many uh you know as i you know even writing books about my journey uh, it caused me to go back and think about what did i really want and why and i think for a while um you know when i started characterizing what my pursuit was and what the results would be. And I started using the word joy. People would often ask me, describe joy. Where does it come from? Where, where does it rest in you? And I first thought about technological joy. I first thought about, you know, this idea of creating things and, and uh, you know, through software and that. And I realized, you know, that's not really where this comes from for me. I had to go f much further back in my own history. And I think one of my seminal moments actually occurred when I was about 10. And I was uh, uh, on my own at home. My parents had gone out to dinner and mom had just bought a bookshelf. Uh, and it was in the garage in a box, much like what you get from Ikea today. But Ikea wasn't selling in the United States back then. 
And for some reason, my inner engineer kicked in. And while they were away, I thought, I'm going to build that bookshelf for them. And so I went out in the garage and I put it all together, you know, 50 pieces of wood and 200 little nest bolts and screws. And I was so proud of myself and so excited to show them. And then it dawned on me, it's like, no, Rich, you built it in the garage and mom wants it in the living room. This is not a good thing. And so over the next hour, I inched that thing out the front of the garage, down the sidewalk, through the utility room, the kitchen, pushed it right into the living room where mom wanted it, set up dad's books, mom's knickknacks, wired up the stereo. When they walked in the door, I had my mom's favorite album playing. Oh. And uh, it was actually the soundtrack to the movie Camelot. So I had a little bit of a connection back to your land. Um, and... Uh, and she cried. And right there, in recalling that story of my youth, I realized that joy actually comes from serving others and serving them to the point of delight. And when I grabbed onto that as a sort of as a a klaxon for, you know, what do I want to, what, what do I want in my work life? That was it. This idea of service to others, of delighting the people we intended to serve. And doing it in a way that we felt proud of how we accomplished the work. And so that, you know, I don't think I thought about that much until later. But I think those kind of moments, uh, and I have more stories to share if you want them. There's a reason my card says chief storyteller. But I think that was a key one for me as that recognition. I think the seminal moment wasn't so much the event of building and delivering the bookshelf for my mom. But recalling it later and seeing what really drives me, what, what excites me, what produces joy in my heart. Right. And, and were you finding then that in those roles you had before you set up Menlo that you, you weren't getting experiences like that? I mean, oh gosh, nowhere close. I mean, <laughs> I was smart. I thought I had a couple of degrees in this industry. Uh, I was surrounded by good people. Ann Arbor is a town where you can build great tech firms because we have a lot of talent around this University of Michigan we have nearby. And um, and yet we were failing. Uh, it, failing in the way I saw it. I mean, the businesses were succeeding. I mean, we were, stock was growing, all the stuff, you know, you kind of measure that has, you know, black and white to it, but um, no delight you know, missing deadlines, blowing budgets, delivering poor quality, having unhappy users and unhappy customers and unhappy team members, you know, nobody satisfied in their career, people frustrated like I was, I was rising up the ranks. That was probably the most frustrating part for me was I was getting promoted. People were saying, you're doing a good job. We're going to give you a raise and a more authority. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing a good job. You know, stop telling me I am when I know I'm not. And so uh, you know, there was no joy. And I remember, you know, one night coming home and I was tired. It's probably a long day, maybe overtime galore, you know, probably work through the weekend or something. And my wife looks at me, she goes, you are not happy, are you? And I said, no. And she said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I don't know. And I was scared. I mean, that was mid thirties. This was the thing I had trained for. This was the thing I went to school for. This was the thing that was buying our house and taking care of our kids and, you know, paying for our vacations. And I didn't know what else I would do. And I felt trapped. And, and that was not a good feeling. Um, and uh, I think that was that, that sense of, I don't think humans trap well in general. <laughs> and there's just this inherent desire to break out of that, that cage that we find ourselves in. And that's really what, what became my kind of lifelong pursuit ever since. Right. And so and your initial impulse was, I need to get out. But presumably at, at that, well, at, at that moment, were you thinking, and I need to build a firm that's built around the, the, the ethos of joy? Well, the, the, the funny thing is, and my wife laughs at me every time I share this. Um, I, my first thought was canoe camp in the boundary waters of Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my first thought was, you know, sell the house, sell the cars, move to the equivalent of the outback of the United States um, and live off the land. You know, and, and at least I'd be in control of things. And my wife, you know, she's like, really? Did you think, you know, we have three daughters. You know, she's like, did you think the girls and I would follow you to the boundary waters? Um, 
I usually have some guys approach me after a conference when I mention that. And they're like, so tell me how far you got with the canoe camp idea. That sounds awesome. Did you have a plan? You know? No, I didn't really have a plan. Just a you know, dream of escape. Um, yeah, you know, interestingly, I had a dream as a 20-year-old that I was going to be an entrepreneur someday. I never thought it would take me till I was 43. And then I would have a company a lot like what Menlo has become. Oh, wow. Filled with human energy and camaraderie and teamwork and trust and, and accomplishing big things. Uh, and I kind of put that dream on the shelf as life took over. Uh, but it wasn't until a few years into Menlo that that dream kind of popped out in a little like gift box in my head and said, oh, by the way, remember that dream you had as a 20-year-old? You, you're there now. And it was, it was kind of a weird moment because I hadn't really as far as I know, been thinking about it actively every single day since then. But, um, but I was able to get back to that. So I guess maybe to your listeners, hold on to those dreams of youth. They, they might, uh, they might actually still come true. Right. But, but how did that first step work? Did you, did you, yeah. What was the first step on the road to Menlo? You know, uh, once you decided that the, the canoe plan wasn't gonna, gonna wash. Yeah, it was, it was, it was actually, there was a pivotal moment uh, with my boss, uh, Bob Nero, who was the CEO of Interface Systems, where I was had been for many years in this frustrating uh, journey. And Bob was a fairly newly uh, minted CEO at Interface. He had come in from the outside to turn around this troubled firm. He had picked me early on uh, through conversations with others, like, you know, tap this guy in the shoulder. He's the guy who can help us lead us forward. And, and Bob was very gentle, very careful, but, and he coached and counseled me and that sort of thing. And one day he called me into his office to offer me a big promotion a very honorable promotion, a VP title on the executive team, VP of R&D, which is the big deal department of a tech firm, right? So I was going to be given, you know, the reins of uh, the biggest budget in the company for sure. And also the most important part in terms of these are our technical products that we're going to bring to market. And, you know, here I am, <clears throat> you know, I'm probably at that point, this was 1997, so I'm 40. Seems like the the right kind of place to have arrived when you're 40 years old, right? And I looked at him and I said, no, I'm not interested. Well, he wasn't happy with me. He, uh, the way I tell the story, he tells it differently. He says, I don't remember it this way, Rich, but he raised his voice. I say it, he yelled, uh, and he threw me out of his office, uh, angry. Uh, he doesn't remember it that way, but that's the way I remember it. So I'm the one telling the story today. Uh, <laughs> and I went home that night and I thought about that opportunity. I thought about this troubled conversation I had with my boss because I am somebody who doesn't want to upset people. You know, that's not my goal in life. And I knew that he was counting on me and I turned him down. I disappointed him and it bothered me. And so I reflected on my life journey. I reflected on those dreams of my youth. Uh, I reflected on all the books I had read. And I kind of looked at that moment and I said, you know, if you're ever going to do it, if you're ever going to make that change, if you're ever going to get to where you think you belong, this is the time, this is the perch, you're prepared, take the opportunity. So I went to Bob the next day and I reapproached him. He was, I think, surprised to see me so quickly. And I said, I changed my mind. I'll take the job if it's still available. And, uh, I said, but I will do it on one condition. And he was a little bit like, hmm? The guy who said no yesterday now is coming back with a condition? And I said, yep. I said, on the condition that you will allow me to build the best damn software team that Ann Arbor has ever seen, and I'm going to need your help. Well, he was a little bit blown away, and he wanted to know what happened in the previous evening, uh, given the change of heart. And I told him much of what I talked with you about now. And I said, this is my chance and I'm willing to take it. And uh, never looked back. Um, it took a couple of years from that point. I, I think the first thing I tried, which I would, I don't know, maybe I had to go through this. I just tried harder. I just came in with new renewed energy. My heart was filled with optimism and, and I just thought working harder will do it. Uh, 
And it was actually my eight-year-old then, Sarah, my youngest, who uh, hit me in the side of the head one day when I took her into work uh, for a take your child to work day so the kids could see what their parents do for a living. And she watched her newly minted VP dad working in his office all day, which I thought probably must have been the most boring thing ever. Right? What are you going to see watching a VP? Where, oh, my dad does email all day. I can't wait to get into the workforce. Um, and at the end of the day, I thought, well, I better ask her how her day went because her teacher is going to ask her tomorrow anyways. And she said, well, what I learned here, Dad, is that you're really important. I said, well, she goes, yeah, what I saw is nobody here can make a decision without asking you first. Oh, well, I will tell you, she was very proud in that moment. I was instantly mortified because I realized a couple of things. One is uh, I've just, you know, she has just confirmed that I have built an organization that can't move faster than me. It's a hero-based organization. I'm the main hero. And the only way to scale a hero-based organization is to scale the heroes. The only way to scale heroes is over time. And I looked across the table at this eight-year-old and I thought to myself, I don't want to wake up 10 years later and realize I missed the best parts of being a dad. And she had two older sisters and I wanted them, I wanted to be a part of their lives. I didn't want them to know me as the guy who was always gone working hard, you know? And um, so I started a different pursuit that ultimately ended up in creating inside of interface systems uh, about 1999, a team that looked, almost identical to what Menlo does today. It was a dramatic transformation. It happened within about six months. Uh, then the company was sold because they loved what they saw in my team. And uh, in many ways, the rest is history. I'd probably still be there today, except the dot-com bubble burst caused the California company that purchased us to remote to shutter every remote office they had, including our Ann Arbor office. And while they could take away all the things uh, the worldly things that I had in that job, you know, title, authority, stock options, paycheck, all that kind of stuff. They couldn't take away what I'd learned between 1999 and 2001. And so when we started Menlo in 2001, we were taking two years of lessons from the experiences of interface systems. So we were able to really hit the ground running in 2001 uh, with the creation of the new company. And I knew it would work. I watched it work for two years. And it's been working well ever since. So, but, uh, yeah, but what I'm fascinated now about what you've shared is six months. So certainly in my experience as a, as a consultant and a lot of the stories you hear, uh, for, for a transformation of culture, tends to take a lot longer than six months. So I said I've got, I've got two questions in my mind is how many people uh, is the first and then, and then how did you manage to do it uh, as quickly as that? Yeah. Uh, so I had about 40 people working for me at the time. And uh, about a quarter of those, uh, a third of those, a little bit more than a third were uh, software developers, which is the biggest change area I had to make. And um, I had a partner in this. I had brought in a consultant, James Goble, uh, who is now my co-founder at Menlo. And, um, and I started out with pretty low aims, actually. Uh, it was kind of <laughs> interesting to look back at it now. I just wanted to teach my team some new technological toys, you know, object-oriented programming and that sort of thing. And James was a good one to help teach my team that. But he kept coming back and asking me a troubling question, uh, one that would, has become famous inside of Menlo since then. He said, well, what problem are you trying to solve? I'm like, what do you mean? I said, my programmers don't know object-oriented programming. I want them to know that. He said, no, no, that's a solution to something. But what's the problem you have. And he and I started getting into these pretty interesting conversations about teamwork, about trust, about uh, producing results, producing higher quality software, delighting the people we intended to serve. And he said, well, I can tell you, Rich, you're not going to get there with what you were doing. You know, it's right. like this technological thing and then you've got a lot bigger challenges. And so he started giving me ideas to pursue. And, uh, and I kept saying yes to every one of them. And there was one day he pulled me aside as a consultant and he said, you don't understand this consulting thing, do you? I said, what? He goes, 
you have to say no at least once or you'll be able to hold me accountable for results. <laughs> and I said, James, I'm not interested in holding you accountable. I'm interested in succeeding. The ideas you're presenting make a lot of sense to me. So we started running some small experiments to try a different way of working. And the one that struck me first as first odd, but then compelling, was this idea of pairing two people together. Two people at one computer sharing a keyboard and a mouse, working on the same task at the same time all day long. It felt counterproductive to me. It felt like I was cutting the team's capacity in half by doing this. But the results that we started getting, the increase in quality, the increase in human energy in the team, the increase in speed moving forward of not getting stuck, of producing higher quality solutions more completely than we ever had before. All of a sudden, I thought, man, we got to try this at a larger scale. So we tried it. First, we just tried it with two people. Then we tried it with the whole team. And it was, they were resistant, as you can imagine. We had programmers and cubes and offices and library quiet and dark and all that kind of stuff. Um, and now we're having them work together in close collaboration. And we switched the pairs every couple of weeks just so they could get to know each other. Even though they'd worked together for 30 years, they, some of them hadn't really gotten to know each other. Not surprising in a tech firm. And the results were just mind-blowing in terms of their excitement, their energy, their moving forwardness, uh, you know, get, getting the rest of the company involved. And it just caught fire. Uh, and, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm still amazed we were able to pull it off within uh, six months. We had it working. It was rocking and rolling. And we got to run it for two years before the dot-com bubble burst. And so I saw the future in that. And I knew we could do that again. And that was the basis for Menlo. Right. And so the, and the pair programming, I know I've been around software teams. I was a software engineer myself. And yeah, that, to get it to stick has been, uh, it's certainly in my experience, the thing that's hard with pair programming. You know, you can try it for a bit and maybe it runs for a while, but then, uh, yeah, sustaining it. How, how, did you, how did you have it be a sustainable practice? Yeah, you know, I think, Part of it was there is a, there's no, no question that a personal vision from a, a leader is important. Uh, yeah, they, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I have to say, um, I, I make it sound so easy, right? And it wasn't, of course. Uh, we're changing human behavior at this point, and that's one of the hardest things to change in the planet. So what I had to recognize, and, and it came later, you know, in terms of um, you know reward systems. If you're making change of any kind, you have to recognize that every time you make any kind of change, even if it's incredibly beneficial, you are taking a reward away from someone. And if you don't put, you know, it's sort of like that scene in Indiana Jones when he's trying to steal the jewel, right? And he's, you know, he's 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 about to take it. He's got to put the little bag of sand on top uh, with this quick motion. Of course, it didn't work for him, but I guess it sort of worked for me. Uh, so when you take a reward away, you better be able to replace it with a reward of equal or greater value as quickly as possible, or you will just get lip service to the change. You know, you'll, they'll change their vocabulary. They won't change their behaviors. And so um, I had to, like, think through how, what rewards was my team hanging on to so tightly, even if they were pain-filled rewards, right? Where's my office? What's my title? You know, what slice of the technology do I own that nobody will bother me about, right? Um, you know, they're not thinking the bigger thoughts of, are we succeeding as a business? Are we thrilling our customers? Do I feel proud of the work I did every day when I go home? Can I schedule a vacation without getting a pager, which is what we had back in those days? Um, and so, um, so I kind of tricked them along the way. Uh, you know, I told them this is just a short time. We just want to try this for a short period of time. Uh, but they caught on to never felt better about work, never got more done, never felt more energized, never learned as much as they did. Cause I will tell you that learning for a technical team is really important, especially if a new technology is coming out. And back then it was Java. Mm -hmm. And they all wanted to know Java. You know, the, the shiny object of a new technology was the thing that really caught their attention. 
the fact that they were learning it in the context of this new way of behaving was the key. And eventually I, I pulled out a little bit of a management trick because I was still getting, call it lukewarm adoption. I'd get it every now and then, and then they'd slip back into their cubes to do work. And then they'd come out in the big open space we called the Java factory to do work. And okay, this is too hard. You know, every day I was like herding squirrels to get them out into the big open room. And so I just created a new rule. I, I brought them together and I said, guys, you can choose. You can work out in the biggest open space in the new way, pair programming, switching the pairs every two weeks in those days. I said, you know, that's going to be available to you always. Also, you can work the old way in your old offices and cubes. The rule is going to be, though, if you want to work on the new products in the new technology, you have to work in the new way. Oh, boy. Now I've created a tug of war in their hearts, right? <laughs> I want to work on the new stuff because that's what programmers like to do. Right. I want to work in the new technology because that's what programmers want to do. Oh, I have to work the new way. Yep, that's the rule. Can't work on the new stuff in the old way. There's plenty of old work to do. There's plenty of maintenance work to do. There's plenty of customer support stuff to do. You can do all of that. And within that six-month time period, one by one, my programmers started coming to me and saying, I never go to my office anymore. You can give it away. I don't use it anymore. I literally had changed what I called the paths in the carpet. People started walking in a different door. They started going to sit in a different chair. They started to work in a different way. And because it was a new space, brains are funny about space and behaviors, right? I mean, we all know this. I mean, anytime you've had that old man moment, I have more of them every day, of being in the kitchen and wanting something in the garage, getting out to the garage and saying, hey, why, why was I here again? <laughs> and then you have to go back in the kitchen and you go, oh, yeah, that's what it was. Space changes our thinking. There's no question. They've actually found that like, when you walk through a doorway, it literally changes the frame set in your mind. Um, and so in this new space, new way of working, there was no escape. There was no personal space to go to run to. And you were always going to be paired. And so they just got used to that new behavior. And then it became inherent. And then they began defending it. Right. You, you they, created some constraints, right? Some simple yep. constraints. And, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing I'd read about three months right it takes three months to establish a new habit i guess you you kept them in that pattern long enough that it became habitual yeah right but then i still don't get the lip so okay so i get you've got these energized programmers there that are delivering higher quality software how do you how do you relinquish your role as hero mm. yeah it was funny i i can remember the day that uh i had uh, accomplished the goal. Uh, it, it was just tangible. Because remember, my daughter had come in in 1997, and she's she what she saw, what she told me, she says, Dad, I saw people just lined up outside your office all day waiting for answer, man. You know, come in. Hey, Rich, I got this problem. What should I do? And I'd say, oh, you should do this, this, and this. And then they go on to their way, right? And they were happy. And she was like, oh, that's so cool. Look at how smart my dad is, right? Uh, well, one day... Uh, in late 1999, uh, after all this was running, and uh, uh, you know, I had Dave, one of my longtime programmers, uh, was walking down the corridor, and he kind of waves at me. He says, "Hey, Rich, by the way, we had a big emergency today. All taken care of. Don't need to worry about it. Uh, if there's anything you want to hear about, you know, what what was wrong or what happened, how we fixed it, let me know." And I'm like, "What?" there was an emergency how did i not how was i not involved in the meetings and it was it was right at that moment where i realized you did it you know it was a series of tiny steps you know just a little bit of turning the temperature up every day but it was working and i was no longer central to the decision making and you know at menlo now we have no bosses we have no reporting relationships we have leaders which is very different kind of a layer of authority inside of an organization. Leadership can only be done through influence. If you don't have positional hierarchical authority, you can't just tell people what to do. They have right. to lead others through influence. And by having created an organization like that now, uh, I go on vacation like I did last week, and they're not hounding me with anything. 
Nobody's calling up and saying, Rich, what should we do? You know, do they still need me? Sure, they still need me. You know, they still want to see my vision for the future. They want to hear about, you know, what am I thinking? That's important, but I'm not central anymore. And that started to happen way back in 1999, 2000, 2001. And it was, I will tell you, it's a little unnerving. You know, you, you begin to question, where is your own value in this? Where, what value are you delivering if you're not answer man every single day, if you're not seen as the smartest guy in the room and, you know, the loudest voice and the one with the last word on things? And it's hard to let go of that. I, my team will tell you, he's still letting go of that. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they humble me every now and then with the, the mistakes I make. Right. But I'm just putting myself, you know, if I'm listening to this and I'm an executive, I'm just thinking of one particular individual in my LinkedIn network who put something out the other day and he's like, just come off my 13th Zoom call of the day. Um, If this is the new normal, you know, puke emoji, right? I mean, clearly he, well, he see my story about him is he's an answer man right now. You know, if he's got to be involved in that many Zoom calls, right? There's a lot of decisions coming to him. He is a very senior executive. I think they're going to be people interesting, interested in knowing what were some of those steps that took you from answer man to storyteller. And <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, and I think actually, I think the storytelling piece is, is critical because the question is, how can your team, how can you lead your team when you're not there? I I think that's maybe the essential uh, question for leadership as you, as you move up, especially as you move up in the executive ranks, because let's face it, that that guy you're talking about is probably in one of those organizations where there's a certain layer management from that layer and above, there are literally human sacrifices to meetings. Right. Yeah. And you know, there can be no worse day. I don't think than 13 consecutive meetings, whether zoom calls or in person, right. Where you're just running from meeting to meeting to meeting. And, when there were real meeting rooms, people would be outside going like this. Yeah. Like, come on, come on, it's time. We got to get in there. And everybody's inside. Just one more minute, just one more minute, right? And, and typically, you know, I always tell people, if you really want to suck the human energy out of an organization, have lots of meetings. Don't make any decisions in those meetings. And if by chance you happen to make a decision, just don't act on it. And you'll kill the culture of your organization for sure. And so uh, what we ended up doing, and this is, I'll try and get specific with you, but let me just describe it in general terms first. Replace uh, hierarchy, bureaucracy, meeting load, chaos with simple, visible, measurable structure structure that feeds human energy because humans crave structure. And if you create simple, repeatable, measurable, visible structures that everybody understands, if you increase clarity to the point that people know what they're supposed to be doing, what they're going to be working on, what their goals are and how that, how their goals fit into a much bigger picture, then all of a sudden you don't have to be Everywhere, you know, I remember the old, remember the old videos of the, the carnival guys that would spin plates on sticks and they get one going and you'd be amazed they could spin a plate and then they'd put another stick up and they'd spin a plate and then they'd have to go back and re-spin the other one before it fell and then this one started to wobble and then they'd have like five or six of them going. I can't imagine a better meme for upper level management than the plate spinner. And of course, what happens, right? Eventually, they put one more up than they can, and that one crashes, and all their attention goes to the crashing plate, and then all the rest of the plates go crashing down, right? So this idea of structured system, systems thinking, was very important to me. It was very important to the accomplishment. So for example, now I'll go down to some tangible pieces. Yeah, what do you mean by a structured system? Yeah. So every week, at Menlo, we put together a plan for the entire team for the week. It gets published on Fridays. It's, there is a certain set of people who are in charge of that process, but everyone can participate. So there's an inclusiveness to the process where everyone has a voice, but there are a few people. If the voices aren't coming, there's a few people who are responsible for putting out this plan. And the plan basically defines 
it, it's, we'll call it a portfolio management system for people in executive positions. It says, what's the total body of work we need to get done next week? For Menlo, for our customers, uh, you know, who's on vacation, you know, where is everybody? And now, now we're going to decide who's going to be on which projects, who's going to pair with whom, and how are we going to get all the work done? And there's a whole other set of rituals and ceremonies we do to get to the pieces that fold into this plan. But let's just start with this one. So at the, by 3 o'clock on Friday, the team knows Friday at 3 o'clock, there is going to come out a new schedule. And your name will be on it. My name will be on it. We'll, we'll just have columns. And it'll say, um, when you come in Monday morning, uh, here is your uh, here's the project you're working, working on the Ovis project, or you're working on the uh, Henkin project, or you're working, these are all code names we use for our projects. And so what we've pulled out of the equation, which I think leads to a lot of meetings, a lot of chaos, is we've we pulled ambiguity out. See, I used to manage people with percentages. Humans can't work to percentages. I'd say, you know, you're you're on uh, you're on the Ovis project twenty percent. You're on the Henkin project fifty percent. You're you're on the Summit project thirty percent. You're on the, you know, the Starbird project thirty percent. Of course, you're already like, well, isn't that more than a hundred percent? You know, well, that's just good management. That's how we keep you busy. You know. <laughs> so we say no. If you're going to be on Summit twenty percent, we're going to say that's Monday. So now you come in on Monday morning, and you're usually on a Monday morning. Most people's heads are a swirl of okay, what's, what's my top priority? Let's see, was it, was it the thing I got the email about over the weekend? Was it the boss who was screaming at me on Friday? Or was it the phone call that just came in this morning? Which, was, which one is my top priority? And you choose, and you probably choose wrong. So then you got to switch because you chose wrong. And then somebody says the word multitasking. You just need to multitask. You need to do it. But humans can't do that. They, they literally can't do that. I mean, there's like psychological, of course, my wife will remind me, male humans cannot multitask. Uh, <laughs> but so we just take all that ambiguity off the table. So that simple piece right there. Imagine you walk in on Monday morning, you know exactly what you're working on. You know who you're working with. You know what you're supposed to do. And then the plans are all laid out on the wall, visually managed. Right now, of course, we have to, in this pandemic world, we had to switch to electronics, but it was all paper, paper-based planning on the walls. So when I find out that I'm paired with you, you find out you're paired with me. We find out we're on the Ovis project together. We go to the Ovis project board on the wall. We look, and there's our names. There's a card on the wall underneath our names. It's the first one in our lane. We put a yellow dot on it. That's our procedure. That says that's what we, you and I are working on. We will work on one thing at a time. We work on it till it's done or we're stuck, and then we work on the next thing, one thing at a time. What, but so, what about the manager, just to play devil, who comes in and says, whoa, 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 hang on. I know you're supposed to be on that, but I've got this thing over here I really need to work on. Can you, can you just do the afternoon on this thing? You know, what, what, how do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah I, I call that the I, – I, there's two words I use for that. The just one more thing. thing you know, of course, most of us are good boys, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, so we want to say, oh, yeah, just one more thing, sure. Of course, that becomes a cascade of one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, and then you're in chaos. And the second piece is what I call hallway project management, you know, where the boss right. looks at the board yeah. and says, oh, great plan. But, hey, I need you to go over here. From Don't tell anybody, but I need to go over here. So we've armed our team. Fiber, right? Yeah, and we've armed our team with a simple pre-programmed response. And the answer is absolutely. Be delighted to work on that. Let's quickly go over to the work authorization board where our names are, and we'll put what, what do you want us to do? What, let's write it down. Oh, no, no, you don't need to write it down. It's really quick. Oh, no, no, it's fine. It's just take a minute. We'll just write it down. We'll put together a little estimate. So it's going to take us a couple hours. So we're going to put that next in our lane. Oh, by the way, um, just so you know, that thing at the bottom of the lane that you were so excited about last week is probably going to fall. Oh, no, no, no. You know, I, I don't want you to, I want you to get everything done. And I don't want you to work more. I just, I just want you to get more done. You know, and so we just have some really simple, structured, pre-programmed techniques, which are a little bit of improv theater of yes and. Mm. And then what my co-founder so cleverly named Business Aikido. 
which is, you know, if you know about the martial art of Aikido, you never, you never push back. You never fight the force. You go with it. So by saying, absolutely, we'd love to do your card, right? We're going to put it up on the wall and something's going to fall off. Well, all of a sudden, when you establish that consistent pattern of behavior with your team, one that management respects and has to abide by, okay? Because the other title on my card is tour guide. And I have given tours of mental since our beginning. Uh, not just me, but I'm one of the tour guides. Well, you can imagine is as CEO, and I'm touring people through the space where all of this is happening, and I'm telling the tour guy, tour guests the story I've just told you, who else is listening? My team. They're right in the room. They're hearing every time I give a tour, I tell them about this. Well, imagine as soon as the tour group leaves, I'm like, okay, guys, uh, I know you heard what I said over here, but that was all BS. We're just going to go, you know, I need you to do these other things, right? I, I would lose respect instantly if I did that. So what's interesting about the storytelling and touring component of memo is how much it holds me accountable to the system mm -hmm. I'm describing to others. You're recording this. My team might watch this yeah. and say, hey, Rich, that company you're describing in, in your interview there, that, that company sounds amazing. Where, where are they located? Because I'd love to work for a company that thinks like them, right? <laughs> oh, no, no. That was Menlo. I was just, really? I've never seen that at Menlo. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the ability to tell stories over and over again, tell them to the public like I'm talking with you, tell them in books, tell them in tours of people coming to visit, how much accountability that builds into the system, right? Because accountability has to be a two-way street. I can't say I need you to be accountable without me providing the accountability as a, as a leader can, that you have the capacity, you have the, the capability to do what I'm asking you to do. And part of that capability is am I giving you enough time to do it? Am I willing to push other things out of the way for you to get the thing done? And that's really where I had been falling down throughout my earlier career. Either I was being pushed down by bosses above me or I learned to do that because that's how I was taught to lead. And it just felt like good management. If I just overload you, I'll keep you busy and I don't have to think about you anymore. And if there's quality problems later, I'll yell at you for, for why did you, you know, I, you know, I can say something. I had a boss once who cleverly said to me, says, well, I never asked you to do poor quality. Like, wow. That is, that is technically true. You, you never did. You never said do a shitty job. And, and, and I'd be like, wow, you know, this would stand up in a court of law, actually. You know, he, did your boss ever tell you to do poor quality work? Well, no, actually, he didn't. Well, then why did you do it? Well, can I tell you about the chaos we operated in every day and how I was always working 130% of capacity and how, you know, well, didn't you learn how to say no? Well, actually, no was never an actual option. Well, did you ever try saying no? Uh, yeah, I think I did years ago, and it didn't go well. So I just stopped ever trying to say no, right? And so you just, after a while, you're like, oh, my God, you're right. It is me. I am guilty. I, I should work. I need to work harder. <laughs> yeah. So, So all of these things we do are very... It's consistent. It's well understood. It's so well understood. Our team can teach it to others. We actually teach classes and how we do all this stuff because if you can teach it, uh, you're going to be much better at doing it. And right. so, uh, you know, the, all the things we've put together and they fit together into a understandable, cohesive system of getting work done. And that's really what I had been missing in all those earlier years. And that's where the hero-based stuff, and you know, quite frankly, I mean, the easiest way to identify in your organization, are we a hero-based organization or are we a systems-based organization is ask yourself what happens when something goes wrong. In a hero-based organization, people seek out the guilty culprits. They, they look for the, for the person, they look for the people who did something wrong and then they're gonna dole out the punishment. And that could just be a raised eyebrow. It could be a diminished promotion or a non-existent one later. It could be a raised voice in a meeting or a sarcastic comment about you guys never actually get stuff done. A systems-based organization, the leaders 
pause and say, how did our systems allow this to happen? Or did we avoid our systems? And I will tell you, if you're really truly a system-based organization, when the time get tough, you flee towards the system, not away from it. A system is at its best if it's a good system, when it's under stress, when it's under pressure, when it has to deliver. And most organizations can have a system that works, but as soon as the rubber hits the road, as soon as the fire heat of, you know, pressure of the deadline or something, everybody's like, forget the system. <laughs> Just go get work done. Yeah, we'll come back to the system later. Well, you can never, there is never a later because then it's firefighting galore. And that's what my life was like way back when. Right. And it's interesting because it, that seems to be something of a pattern with the, yeah, the types of organizations that seem to experience more joy and happiness is, is I mean, I'm thinking of the, Holacracy, which presumably you're familiar with, which is another, it's another system of managing the work, right? But it, but yeah, the focus is on the systems, not the performance of the individuals. Uh, and it sounds like you're describing a, another system that you have at Menlo. Uh, yeah, that certainly yeah, seems and to be a I thing. will tell you, go back and reread anything that Deming wrote about this, and you will see that this was what he was, um, talking about back in the forties and fifties and in many ways led to the, to the rise of uh, Japanese cultures like Toyota because. Right. Again, that's the, I mean, is there the title, right? The, the Toyota production yep. system. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, uh, yeah. It's, it's good to be reminded of that, you know, that being a sort of pertinent characteristic of, you know, and, and you say, you know, you say, Peter, oh, it's a systems-based organization. Oh, God, oh, God. Uh, he sure. wants to work yep. at a systems-based organization. And yet, these are organizations where people can often feel a lot more happiness. Well, and bureaucracy is the thing people fear. And bureaucracy is actually a scapegoat for bad systems, right? Bureaucracy is, uh, oh, there's someone over there making decisions for us, and you feel powerless. A good, simple system you know, gives people power to do things, right? Gives right. our team power to say, absolutely, I can do that extra thing you want. What's going to suffer because of it? Right? That's, right. We don't need a meeting for that. You know, our, our mantra is take action before taking a meeting, you know, because people hate meetings. You know, we think they're mind-numbing, spirit-sucking, energy-draining devices of management. So I understand why your friend is, you know, barfing with an emoji because he's in 13 consecutive Zoom meetings. That would drive me crazy. Right. And yeah, and we get, well, there's a whole industry about how to improve meetings. And of course, you know, something should be said for that. But, you know, perhaps the problem is you've got, you know, one place to look is why you've got so many meetings in the first place. And, and of course, personal productivity and uh, is also a theme. But again, yeah, in a hero culture, that makes sense. But how how can you actually reframe how you're thinking about the whole problem, right? About the whole. Yeah. And you know, I draw a little metaphor now, an airplane. Uh, and I talk about the forces that work on an airplane like a system, right? You've got lift and you've got weight, you've got thrust and you've got drag, right? Same thing on a human organization. Talking about the lift of human energy, the weight of bureaucracy. You'll never get rid of all the bureaucracy, right? Just like you could never get all the weight of an airplane off. It wouldn't have any utility without it. But you better have more things feeding human energy than feeding the bureaucracy. Your plane will never get off the ground. Talk about the thrust of purpose, making sure people understand your externally focused purpose. Who do we serve? What would delight look like for them? Make sure everybody understands where, where are we going? Why are we going there? And then the drag of fear. And I think fear is probably one of the biggest killers of any organization, right? The idea that particularly that I'm not talking about the things we should be afraid of. Like we should be afraid of getting the COVID-19 virus. Uh, we should be afraid of it passing amongst our family and our team members. I mean, those are healthy fears. Those fears keep us alive. What I'm talking about is the fears that we often are taught to use as managers to motivate people. Artificial fear. Do you want to keep your job? Are you thinking about next year's promotion? You know, or just that heave of a sigh at a meeting or a raised eyebrow or a little snide, sarcastic remark that everybody's thinking about for the next two weeks and they're talking about it in the lunchroom. What do you think the boss meant when he said that? Who do you think he was talking about, right? That kind of stuff just, you know, that is like the drag on an airplane. That'll just slow you down to the point you might never get your little organizational aircraft off the ground every day. 
But if you design those systems right, if you have more human energy than bureaucracy, more focus on purpose and the drag of fear, your little organizational aircraft will get off the ground every day and, quite frankly, can fly to heights and distances that for most were previously unimaginable. And that's certainly true for what I've seen in my career for the last 20 years. Right. So I'm just thinking about my friend again with his barf emoji. So, so we're going we're gonna to set up for him a system where, you know, the work is visible. You know, people are clear on what they're doing uh, throughout the week. Uh, if people come at them left field, that they're, they're sort of practiced in, in the, uh, the Aikido of, of uh, turning that request uh, into, I guess. You know, positive uh, discussion and positive, yeah, constructive positive discussion. discussion. Yep. And, that, and, that, and that pushes account or that shares the accountability with the person making the, the, the request for what may, the consequence of that might be. Is there, is there anything else you would, you know, you, you could sort of illustrate from your own experience um, that will make a difference and uh, have that person be less in a, in a hero situation? Well, I think the biggest frontier in any organization, uh, if they've decided on a culture, which itself is a, is a frontier, right? Most organizations have what I call a default culture. Who did we hire? What behaviors do we tolerate? What, uh, what attitudes walked in the door this morning? That's our culture du jour, right? And it can change dramatically every single day. And hero-based cultures, often based on heroes, can run for a really long time really well. And then one day they stop and nobody knows why they worked in the past and nobody knows how to get them back on track. And so um, this idea of creating an intentional culture that everyone understands can be spoken to in story, not just a poster on the wall. You know, those are, those are always the most dangerous types, you know, the, 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 the vapid, you know, sayings we get from motivational posters or something like that, but something your team really believes in is really important. And then, you know, learning to live that story uh, again and again, to, to be called into question, to be humble enough to, um, allow yourself to be called into question when, uh, when you're not behaving as far as that, uh, that culture goes. And then once you've established what you think is your culture, and that can take a while. I mean, I, you're right. I mean, a six month transition I went through at interface was still, I look at as kind of a miracle, but, um, now let's look at our HR practices. How do we recruit? How do we interview? How do we select? How do we onboard? How do we promote? Because I can tell you there's a whole bunch of organizations who will speak a culture of teamwork, of trust, of relationship. And yet when we get to your annual performance review, which by the way is probably one of the dumbest things out there, um, but assume you still have one. And it's all about your individual performance and your individual goals. And you might be sitting in that room saying, but what about the teamwork thing we talk about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not important right now. So we're talking about you. you know, what are your goals? Like, well, but how do my goals fit into the rest of the team? And so I don't think you can ever get to that cultural intention that you're looking for without taking a hard look at all of those serious HR practices. And often those two don't marry up. Right. Because, yeah, well, I guess one point you're making there is the HR practices may be around individuals' performance. And presumably, I guess, how does that shift to be much more of a focus on the, on the system? But what yeah. does that look like? Like, yeah, you know, so what, when what, we is interview, there, is there an equivalent? I mean, yeah. So let me, let me tell you when we interview, uh, we, we set the tone right off the bat. Um, because we pair when we work, we mimic the environment of memo when we interview. We pair candidates with one another to work together. And then we give them the weirdest instructions ever. Your job is to get the person sitting next to you a second interview. Help your partner succeed. Make your partner look good. What we're looking for in this first interview is good kindergarten skills. Do you play well with others? Well, all of a sudden, man, we've totally reframed the interview process because you're thinking, but I the second interview. Uh-huh. Help the person sitting next to you. That's what we're observing. That's what we're going to watch for. We're not going to even ask you any questions. We're not even going to look at your resume right now. We'll get to technical skills later. But right now, I want to see, do you marry up with our ideal team player? 
you know, are you hungry? Are you humble? Are you smart? As Patrick Lencioni would say, and the smart part is the people smart part. And so, again, you know, there are very practical things we've done to reinforce and start teaching our culture because that's something you have to do if you have a cultural intention is teach it. We start teaching it the day of the interview. We tell mm-hmm. people what good kindergarten skills look like at minimal. Well, what are we actually looking for? And that gets reinforced every step of the way. And then right. your peers are the ones who give you feedback, not, not any bosses because we don't have any of those. All of your promotions are derived from peer evaluations because what are your peers asking? How did you help me succeed? What right. kind of certain leadership did you exhibit? Right. And so even, even that pair is like a microsystem. And what you're looking for is that individual's contribution to the microsystem of that pair, right? So yeah, right from the get-go, you, you're creating that. Yeah, I see. Uh, fascinating. Yeah. Um, yes. And, and it, so, so, of course, not everybody listening to this are going to be uh, software engineers. So do you pair every, you know, do you pair marketing people together? I mean, We do. Where does yeah. It... I mean, it, it, I will say the weakest parts of Menlo are where we catch ourselves not pairing from time to time. And that might even include me. Uh, so yes, we found that pairing is the strongest construct. There are certain roles that are always paired. There's other roles that'll kind of more casually pair, but, uh, but it is the, the foundation. If you ever see a pair of people working in mental, nobody questions it. They'd be like, yes. If you see somebody working alone, it'd be like, are you working alone? Don't you have a pair partner today? <laughs> so it's a little weird from that standpoint. So. Right. So you use it across the board. Interesting. Um, and then some of the fun things, which just reading, you know, uh, uh, on the site, you know, oh, and foot, the babies, the dogs, oh, yes. yep. <laughs> babies and dogs. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing more of them now that we're virtual because there's no risk of bringing a baby into the office. But yeah, we, we let newborns come into the office with parents, uh, all day, every day. They usually come in at about three months old and stay till they're about six or seven. And we've had 26 Menlo babies in the last 13 years been a wonderful uh, experiment for us and it's worked incredibly well right and 40 hour weeks right yep yeah i mean it is it, are there exceptions there of course there are but the norm the expectation for everyone is you're not going to work more than 40 hours in a work week and that predominantly is a systems level thinking that says tired people are going to make mistakes we don't want mistakes we want to keep them as low as possible so we're going to work 40 hour work weeks we're not going to work weekends. We're not going to, when you leave the office, you know, when there was an office, when you leave the office at the end of the day, you're done working. And, uh, you know, so, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it allows people to have a life outside of work, uh, that I think, you know, again, you know, we rejuvenate to more babies. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> can't speak to that. I don't know, but there have been, we are a prolific crowd. That's for sure. <laughs> right. Okay. And so, I mean, I guess ordinarily, if I was asking you as an individual, I might ask you, you know, what's your edge, Rich? What are you working on? What do you see as the next evolution for you as an individual? But I think in this context, I should be asking you, what do you think the edge is for the, for the system, the Menlo system? You know, where do you see the next breakthrough for, for Menlo? Yeah, you know, we're continuing to improve systems. The, the one we're working on most right now is a system for systematically pursuing sales and following up on them so we can grow the firm. Uh, and we have someone in, uh, that is uh, leading that effort, a pair of people who are leading that effort, of course. And, uh, and it's working. And so we're looking right now, the book that's really driving our thinking on this is called The Four Disciplines of Execution by Chris McChesney. And it's a very neat dovetail into the rest of our systems thinking because it includes uh, weekly cadence, uh, visual management systems, uh, uh, specific reporting out uh, to, to each other uh, and, and assignments that come out of that. And then, you know, measuring both lead and lag measures. And so it all just really appeals to us because it is, in fact, a system. And I think that's uh, really in many ways for us to grow the firm. That was the next big frontier we had. Yeah, because you've got pretty big growth plans that you've put out on your website. Right? You've got uh-huh. this vision. Yep. You've written yeah. the story of what? Is yeah. it 2027? 2027, yep. Yeah. February, February uh, 11th of 2027, we're going to have a party. And you can read about it on the website. And talk <laughs> yeah. about, uh, you know, what's happening that day and where we are and how big we are and what we've accomplished and what our dreams are for the future and that sort of thing. And that's another way to, you know, by telling a story about the future, you can really inspire your team. 
Right. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Rich. Um, very entertaining uh, and inspiring, right? I mean, I, I yeah, you, you're you're out there proving <laughs> that all this uh, this woo woo happiness is for real. People create successful businesses around it. Um, there's yeah, an- who, who knew that joy could produce great business results, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 fabulous to hear 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 that. Uh, so thank you, uh, and yeah, so we'll put links to the books, uh, to the site. People can go onto your website and they get a tour. Uh, yes, a virtual, virtual tour right tours, now. Virtual tours of virtual Menlo. Now we're doing about eight to ten a week, so any of your audience would be welcome to. Yeah, um, fantastic. All right, thanks again. You're very welcome, sir. Thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. All right. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.